Welcome to Crossbridge Brickle's weekly podcast. Whether you are listening to us for the first time or revisiting a previously heard message, thank you for listening, and we hope that the time that you spend with us helps connect your life to the way of Jesus. Every week we gather in the south end of downtown Miami in the financial district of Brickle. If you're in Miami or coming to Miami to visit, make sure to join us Sunday nights at 5 o'clock at 1770 Brickle Avenue. Included with the podcast today, we want to provide online notes for you to follow along with the message through the Bible app, as well as our Spotify playlist to listen to our music played during our gathering on the weekends. All of this information is found in the description of this week's podcast. If you have any questions about Crossbridge, Jesus, or faith in general, we would love to hear from you, and the easiest way to connect with us is by emailing us at brickle at crossbridgemiami.com or send us a text to our text-in number at 305 305- Nine three zero seven zero zero six. Once again, thank you for tuning in. And now here's this week's message from Crossbridge Brickle. Tonight's reading comes from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 9. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are eternally grateful for your word. We ask, God, that you would open our mind to engage and to process the beauty of what is before us. Would you challenge us? Would you not allow us to shrink back, but to lean in and sit in the tension as we reflect upon your truth and the way that we live? Would we really evaluate, God, those things that we value over you, that we worship over you? And would you humble us and move us to see your unmatched worth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this evening we begin episode four of our series entitled Influencers. And the passage that Lauren just read is from Psalm 95. And it is the most referenced passage on the topic of worship for thousands of years. In all the Bible, this passage is the most referenced, the most looked at passage on the topic of worship, when the church gathers to discuss and to learn what it looks like to worship God. How many uh, of you in this room are Harry Potter fans? Harry Potter, that's a lot of engagement, guys. All the other times I asked you to do something, you were nervous, and I said, Harry Potter, and it's like, ha yes! J- J.K. Rowling, she's brilliant. It's a wonderful, run- wonderful story. If you've read the books and the movies, if you've watched the movies and not read the books, don't tell anybody because the people that read the books are going to judge you, okay? So 
if you've just watched the movies, just be like, oh yeah, the books are great, you know, but don't ever say that you didn't read them. They are fabulous. It's really incredible writing. It's a great story. And if you're familiar with Harry Potter, you know at the very beginning of the story, there is a scene where Harry, if you're unfamiliar, he's the guy with the lightning bolt in his head. He goes into this room and he stumbles upon a mirror. And it's the mirror of Erised. He takes off the cloth and he looks into the mirror. And Harry Potter sometimes is very much on the nose. Uh, mirror of Erised is just mirror of desire backwards. Some of you are like, what? Yes, it's just the mirror of desire backwards. And the mirror of Erised, Harry Potter looks into and what he sees takes him back. He sees his parents loving him and caring for him in this family environment. And it moves him deeply because Harry's parents died when he was very, very young. He never enjoyed his parents. He didn't know much about his parents. He was never raised by his parents. But when he looked in this mirror, he saw his parents and him in their house. And so he goes and gets his best friend, Ron, and says, Ron, you got to come see this mirror. And he, he says, Ron, look into the mirror. And he expects that Ron is going to see his parents. But what Ron sees is something completely different. Ron sees himself winning the Quidditch Cup. He's a sports champion, he, and he sees himself kind of becoming elevated and victorious in different places. He essentially sees himself becoming popular. And they're wondering, what is the deal with this mirror? And then Dumbledore comes in. He's the guy that runs the school, the, the tall white guy with the long beard, wizard. He's there, and he says, listen, let me explain to you what this is. This is the mirror of Erised, and when you look into it, you see the deepest desire of your heart. So Harry, you saw your family. That thing that you desire, that you wish you experienced, that you think about, that motivates you. Ron, you see your, yourself winning the Quidditch Cup and becoming popular and achieving great things. And he said that we hide it up here because people will waste away looking into the mirror. You see, when you consider this idea, the mirror of Erised, when you look into it, you see the deepest desire of your heart, and the danger of it is that you can waste away before it. It reveals something about humanity, and that is that our biggest problem is what we worship. Our biggest problem is what we worship. It's what actually holds the deepest place of our heart. It's what actually sits on the throne of our heart. It's what actually is the very thing that motivates and drives everything that we are. And if we are able to look at it and to see it, we'll waste away before it. Because our issue is that we place things in the deepest levels of our heart that don't deserve to be placed there. They are not valuable enough. They are not worthy of no enough to sit in that place of our heart. You have to ask yourself that question. Be honest. If you were to look into the mirror of Erised, what would you see? Would you see you advancing in your career? Would you see some relationships developing and deepening? Would you see your kids prospering? Would you see popularity? What would you see? Because the only thing that is worthy to claim that place of your heart, the throne of your heart, is God himself. You see, what we should see when we look in the mirror of Erisad is us enjoying God. But our problem is that if we're honest, most of us would not see that. We would see something else. 
And so we waste away chasing after things that are not worthy of our worship, and they're not worthy of our attention and our praise and our devotion. And here in Psalm 95, the psalmist is writing to help us understand what worship looks like and what it is. So what is worship? Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your whole self. It's when you ascribe ultimate value to something, and then because you are so singularly focused on praising and glorifying and following after that thing, it takes over your whole self. And that's what the psalmist is going to say here too, is that worship has three aspects to it. And so worship of God has three aspects to it. And the first is this, worship is emotional. It is emotional. Look what it says in verses one through five and feel what he's writing. He says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For he, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. See, there's a lot of emotion here. Let us sing, let us bring a joyful noise, let us praise God for all that he has done, for he's the king of kings, because he's great, because he made the sea and the earth and the sky. Worship is emotional. Now, we all process emotion differently. Some of us cry easily. Some of us are expressive. Some of, some of us internalize a lot of our emotion. We all process and feel emotion differently, and we're susceptible to certain emotions at certain times. But what we see here in the passage is really clear is that worship entails emotion. There is emotion. You can feel the writer conveying emotion to God in regards to worship. Let us sing. Let us rejoice. Let us bring a joyful noise. Let us shout with songs of thanksgiving. So what that means is that if your worship has no emotion, you're not worshiping. You're not worshiping God. Because, what does he say? Why should we come before God with emotion, with joy, with thanksgiving? Because he's a great God and you're in his presence. You see, what the psalmist is saying is that you cannot come before the presence of God when you read his word, when you pray, when you meditate, when you serve other people, when you gather with his people, when you sing songs. You cannot come before the presence of God and not feel emotion. You cannot. And so if you feel nothing, you're probably just going through the motions. You're probably just acting upon ritual, probably doing something out of an act of obedience to appear a certain way to other people, but it's not worshiping God because if you come before the presence of God, you're going to feel emotion. You may think, well, I, there are times that I read my Bible or I pray or I meditate or I come to church and I'm not happy. <laughs> I'm not full of joy. I'm not singing the song of thanksgiving. I'm actually a little angry if the song is too upbeat. I'm like, I'm not feeling that right now. <laughs> you may think there's times where I come, come to church and I come before the presence of God and I'm in, in these different modes of worship and I'm angry. I'm really angry. I'm sad. I'm confused. 
I'm feeling abandoned and isolated. Those are emotions. See, just because in Psalm 95, the psalmist speaks about these positive emotions of joy and thanksgiving and praise does not mean that the only response and proper response in worship is positive and you have to kind of fake it and be like, I'm really mad and upset at God and I'm really sad, but I'm just, I gotta put on the smile because it's not worship unless I'm emotional. No, it's positive or negative emotion. In fact, a huge chunk of the book of Psalms which are prayers and songs to God, are psalms of lament, sadness, depression, anger. See, the reality is when you come before the presence of God through song, through prayer, through reading God's word, through serving other people, being around God's people, however it is that you're coming to worship God, you will feel emotion, whether positive or negative. And if you feel nothing, then it's not worship. And here, the psalmist uses the example of singing. Because singing is a primary way that we worship God. It's one of the primary modes of worship. There's many different ways that we express emotion in worship through song. We raise our hands, which is ascribing praise to God. We open our hands to receive God's truth, to essentially communicate with our body that we're open to receive and and to take in what we're singing, what we're hearing. We clap our hands. Some of us are like, I try to, you know, trying to stay on beat and sing at the same time could be a little bit difficult. We close our eyes to remove distractions and to focus. We kneel. We sit There's different ways that we use our body to express emotion in worship. If there's a positive emotion, you can express with hands raised or open or clapping. If you're struggling, and maybe that's a time in worship where you can close your eyes and you can sit and you can just allow the words to wash over you. And some of us arrive just in worshiping God through song, and I'm using that example because the psalmist does, And we kind of view it as a not as important segment of the church service. Some of us, it's our favorite part. You're just waiting for me to be done. The rest of us are like, you know, maybe if I just come a little bit late, I'll just miss a few songs, no big deal. But see, all throughout Scripture, we see the importance of singing songs to God. In fact, we see the importance of using our bodies to express emotion through song. And many of us struggle with that because of how we've been raised. Maybe you were raised like me in an environment where singing songs to God was very cold, very dry. Oh, stand up, sit down. There's a similar cadence, maybe a clap here and there. There was no emotion. It just was something you did in the service. And so to actually break out of that mold and to raise your hand or to open your hand or to even clap is a huge step. Some of us were raised on the opposite, where everyone's hands are raised and every, I mean, people are crying, falling out of their chairs. It's unbelievable. And so you're like trying to contain yourself a little bit and you're wondering, is this real? Is this authentic? I'm not really sure. I'm just trying to figure out what's what. But see, the raising of your hands, the opening of your hands, clapping, this is not like some modern way to engage in worship. In fact, 
the church, God's people, have been worshiping God with their hands raised and their hands open for thousands of years. If you look in the scripture, all over the scripture, it says, lift your hands to God in praise. Psalm 63. Ezra tells us that that we're to fall down on our knees with our hands spread out before God in praise. All over the scripture, we see emotion being communicated through expressive modes, whether it's raising your hands or opening your hands or clapping your hands or closing your eyes or kneeling, depending upon the emotion that the Holy Spirit is striking in you. But the reality is, is that worship is emotional. And you should feel free to express that. And we hope that you feel free here to express worship to God, whether hands raised or sitting down or kneeling or closing your eyes, that you feel free to process the emotion that God is stirring up in you when you come before him to worship because you should feel emotion. Some of us are stuck on, like, I don't even understand why we're singing. Like, no other place do I go do I sing songs with other people unless it's karaoke, and then that's pretty rough. But see, the reason we sing is for a few reasons. One, it aids our memory of God's truth. It's a pneumatic device to implant God's truth in your brain. It builds up and unifies the church. I don't know if you felt the way that I felt moments ago when we were singing and you hear the church singing. It unifies the church. It builds the church, and it activates your emotions. Maybe more than any other mode of worship, song and music activates your emotions. It has a unique power. But really, the reason that we sing is because God commands us to sing. He says, sing a new song of worship to me. He enjoys the singing of his people. You're like, he doesn't enjoy my voice. No, he does. You don't have to be a great singer. That's the great thing about all singing together. We just kind of all blend in. And then a few of us, you could really stand out, you know, put a few microphones around for the people that really want it. But we sing because God enjoys our singing. He enjoys being worshiped as he is here with us And it is to be emotional. We are to sing songs of praise to God. And you should allow your emotions to enter in to that moment. Now, I have to say this. You can show up on Sunday and you can hear that and say, okay, I have to engage in these modes of worship with emotion. And so when the songs are sung, I need to allow my emotions. And then you start raising your hand. You raise your hand so high, your arms are gonna pop off your body. And then you leave the church, you're so happy. You're clapping the whole time. Everything is wonderful. And then you go throughout your week and nothing has changed in your life. You just had a great emotional experience, but there was nothing that actually turned over and affected your heart and your mind. That's not worship. Worship isn't emotional manipulation. It isn't forcing your emotions to feel something. It is allowing your emotions to enter in when you come before God's presence. And then it is recognizing the places that God says, here's where you need to surrender. Because worship isn't only emotional, it's also surrender. It takes your will to surrender things that God brings to your mind before him. Look what the psalmist says says in verse 6 and 7. He says, let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Worship is surrender. The posture here is one of bowing down before God, of kneeling before him. Why? Because we are the sheep of his pasture. He is the God who is in control of all things in every aspect of our life and has given everything to us and protects and sustains us. And so therefore, we are to surrender everything to him. And so worship of God is not only emotional, it's also surrender. It takes your will It's when God illuminates those things in you that you have put on the seat of your heart, the throne of your heart. When he makes those aware, are you surrendering those? When you realize that what you see in the mirror of Erised is not you worshiping God, but it is something completely different. It is your career. It is your relationships. It's your kids. It's the approval of others. It's the achievements that you dream about. When God activates that, And when you sense that, whether you're reading his word or praying or meditating or singing or listening to his word preached, does it activate in you surrender? Does it move you to say, I I need to begin to consider laying that before God's feet. I need to kneel. I need to realize that I'm the sheep of his pasture. He's not just in my pasture that I'm making for myself and God, you can have this little plot over here. No, I'm in his. And I have to lay down and surrender for him. Worship is surrender. It takes your will. And that means different things for each of us. If we were to go around the room and say, hey, what's the one thing God's asking you to surrender? Don't worry, we're not going to do that. If we were to do that, it would be a multitude of different things. Some of us would have some of them in common, but it's different for each of us. And it's different things at different times. There are different things that God brings to mind that you need to surrender, big and small, in different seasons of your life. But there's one thing that I think is very relevant, that jumps out in this passage, that's true of all of us. That is that we are to surrender our individualism. We live in the most individualistic culture in the history of the world. And here's our modern conception of spirituality. Our modern conception of spirituality is that the place that matters more than anything is your private time and your private belief system that you've created for yourself. What matters is your meditation hour. It's your morning routine. It's your reading. It's your praying. It's your listening to songs on your own. Your personal time, it does matter, but it's the most important. That's what we hear in our society. You don't need other people. It's just you and God. And so what you do is you jump into other communities of faith that are like-minded when you need something. You go to church when you feel like you need something. You go to community group when you feel like you need something. You get together with those friends when you feel like you need something. But it's mostly just about you. That is our modern conception of spirituality. But did you notice what jumps out of the text here? You don't see anything individualistic. It's all plural. Let us, let us worship, let us kneel, let us bow down because the Christian faith is communal. It is not individualistic. It has always been communal and will always be communal. It is us. 
Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us surrender. Let us praise. It's plural. And some of us, we have to lay that down. Because community is foundational to worship. There's a really sad trend happening in our country right now. Many of you are aware of this. And that is that most Christians that consider themselves very committed to their church go to church once every five or six weeks. They consider themselves very committed. Go once every five or six weeks. Some of you are like, I go more than that, and that kind of sounds nice. Once every five or six weeks, jump in, jump out. But we've done that because we just believe that our faith is just us, it's individual, and then we go to the community when we need something from the community or when we need kind of a pick-me-up or just want to listen to some good music. But it's sad because we will never fully see God for who he is. We'll never clearly see him for who he is when we isolate ourselves and make our faith individualistic. C.S. Lewis, the scholar and theologian, tells this great story about his friends. He had this small group of friends, he and two others. He, he was known as Jack to his friends, and then he had another friend named Ronald, which is J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of Lord of the Rings, and then another one named Charles. Charles, Ronald, which is Tolkien, and then Jack, which is C.S. Lewis. And they had this really small group. They met every single week. They'd write together. They'd talk together. They'd drink pints together. They, all these stories about how they spent time together. And then Charles died. And C.S. Lewis says that I thought that I would actually develop and deepen my friendship with Ronald now because it was just us. So that he would have more of my attention. I would have more of his attention. That we'd have more time together. We'd be able to get closer than we ever have. And he said, actually, the opposite happened. Because when Charles died, I realized that now I was never going to see those things in Ronald that only Charles could bring out. Those aspects of Ronald that Charles brought out and tapped into were now hidden from me. And I would never see them again. Because to really fully see Ronald, I needed Charles. See, for you to fully see God, to know him, to grow in knowledge of him, to worship well, you need other people. Our faith is not individualistic, it's communal. We're a plural people. We, do, we worship together. This is how we grow in the knowledge of God. See, worship isn't only emotional, it isn't only surrender, but it's intellectual too. Look at verse 8 and 9. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, the end of verse 7, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Worship also takes your mind. It's intellectual. He says, hear my voice and don't harden your heart. Listen to what I'm saying and don't reject it. Don't close yourself off to what I'm saying, even when it's uncomfortable, even when there's tension, even when it challenges you. Engage. Listen. All of us here know that there's hearing and then there's hearing. You know what I mean? There's hearing and then there's hearing. It's like, oh, yeah, 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 I heard what you said, but you're not actually listening. Because once you heard something you didn't like, was uncomfortable, you disagreed with, you just put the wall up and shut it off and you're just being polite. Yeah, 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 it's so great. See, worship is intellectual. It's reasoned. It's rational. 
And it is to be open. Your mind is to be open to lean into the difficult things that you hear. To sit in the tension. Not to just reject it and push it aside. The example here is of the Israelites in the wilderness. They saw God rescue them from Egypt, from slavery to freedom. God used Moses to lead them through the wilderness, promised to go to the promised land. And as they're moving through the wilderness, they've seen God work amazing things in their life. They decided, you know what? We're not going to listen to God anymore. They hardened their heart. They stopped listening. They stopped thinking. And they wandered the rest of their life in the wilderness, and they found no rest. Because they weren't worshiping God with their mind. They closed God off. And I'm not listening to you anymore, God. And again, this is one of the problems of our modern conception of spirituality. Is that it promotes you to do this. To close off the things that you hear that you don't like. When you hear something preached, when you read something in the Bible, when you go to a small group and you hear something said by somebody else that you don't like, automatically our reaction is to say, nope, that's not for me. I don't, I don't like how that feels. I don't like to think of God like that. Just going to shut it off. And so what happens is we begin to create this faith that is essentially like this spiritual soup that we just put in the ingredients that we want. And we're not meant to live on soup alone, guys. And if you're like me, I don't even like soup. It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I mean, some of you are like, ah, oh, I love soup. But imagine drinking soup every day of your life. That's going to have some bad effects. Bad effects. We're not meant to live on soup, but we're promoted to create this kind of spiritual soup. Close your mind off to anything that you don't like. If it's, it's uncomfortable, if it challenges you in a way you don't like, you don't like the tension, just push it over there and just keep stirring your soup with the things that you like. It's not worship. Worship is uncomfortable at times. It causes you to sit in the tension, to use your mind, to think, to walk through your doubts. Don't run from them. Lean into them. Process them. Engage with your mind. A couple ways that you can do this is, and you can evaluate whether or not you're worshiping God with your mind, is just in the way that you arrive on Sunday. When you come here, are you coming prepared to engage mentally? Are you preparing yourself? Do you know how you engage mentally, and are you walking in ready to do that? Maybe you're a note taker, and you bring a notebook. Maybe you doodle, and so you got a couple pens, and you're going to doodle because that engages your mind. When, when God speaks to something, and he reveals something to you, whether it's through the sermon, whether it's through a song, do you notate it? Do you write it down? Are you intentionally engaging mentally, allowing God to speak to you? Are you prioritizing environments in your life where you can actually listen to God's word taught, whether it's on Sunday or in a small group and you can hear from other people that may challenge you? Here's the biggest question. When you do hear something that you don't like, that's uncomfortable, is your reaction to reject it and to move away from it or to lean into it? Because worship says lean into it. Don't harden your heart. Listen, hear, wrestle. Worship is emotional. It is surrendered it listens. But ultimately, true worship begins by assigning ultimate value to God. See, if you begin to assess your life and you begin to think, you know what, I need to be more free emotionally in worship. I need to consider more the things that God is asking me to surrender 
and actually begin to, to surrender my will before him. I need to engage my mind and not be so closed off and hardened to certain things. If you begin to contemplate that, the way that you grow in worship is that you begin by assigning ultimate value to God. You make God the ultimate, the greatest influence on your life. That's the biggest question that I hope that you walk away with asking yourself, is God the biggest influence in my life? Is he the biggest influence? Is he in the seat of my heart, the throne of my heart? Is he the one that I would see in the mirror? Because if he's not, your worship will be inauthentic, and you'll see it. It will be fake and forced. There will be times where you're trying to conjure up your emotions to try to feel something because you're feeling disconnected. You will try to convince yourself of something even though you know you don't really believe it, but you're trying to convince yourself and to not harden your heart. You will do something out of ritual, out of a need for obedience so that other people see you. So you're surrendering, but you don't really want to surrender and just a couple weeks later, you're going to take it right back. See, all of us know when our worship is forced and fake. And when you know that, Don't beat yourself up. We're all there. But go back to assigning ultimate value to God. Saying, God, you're not, I'm going to be honest, you're not the greatest influence in my life right now. But I want you to be. Let me begin to engage God with my mind, with my heart and my emotions. Let me surrender my will before you. Because, as verse 3 and 7 says, For God is a great God, the king above all gods. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture. See, why would we assign ultimate value and worth to God? Because he's God. He's the greatest. He's the great king above all gods. We are the sheep of his pasture. This is his He's the only one worthy of that place. And so we need to begin to take inventory of the greatness of God. So my encouragement or challenge to you this week is take this week and every day wake up and say, I'm just going to take five minutes, start here in Psalm 95 and jump around in the book of Psalms. I'm just going to take an inventory of God's greatness. I'm going to read some passages. I'm going to write some things I've seen God do in my life. And I'm going to take an inventory of the greatness of God. I'm going to consider, I'm going to observe, I'm going to meditate on how great God is because this will lead you to worship well. I want you to imagine a story of a woman who is struggling financially and she is trying to figure out how she's going to make a little bit of money. She needs a few thousand dollars and she has this old ring and she, I don't, this ring has been passed down. It, it It kind of looks a little bit dingy. I don't know really the story behind it, but it probably can get me a few thousand dollars. So she goes to the jeweler and she hands the jeweler the ring. She says, listen, can you just tell me how much I can get for this ring? I need a little bit of money. I'm hoping that it appraises at a decent value. I I got some debts to pay. He says, no problem. And then the jeweler takes the ring. He puts that weird little magnifying glass that all jewelers hold with their eyes somehow. You know what I'm talking about? They put that thing in their eye and then they hold it there. He holds that and he begins to observe the ring and he looks at the jewel He's looking at the texture, the light reflecting through it, the clarity. He's observing it. And all of a sudden, as the woman's watching him, he's looking at the ring. That little weird eyepiece falls out of his eye. And he, everything becomes very deliberate. He looks at the woman and he says, do you realize 
what you have here? I don't know, it's just a ring from my family. He says, this is probably the most valuable ring in the world. I never thought I would see a jewel like this. It is perfect in clarity. There is not a flaw on it. This ring is, is absolutely priceless. And she's obviously taken aback. She begins to reevaluate, reevaluate everything because she has been living not in accordance with the value of the ring that she had. It was just sitting in a box in her room. She had no understanding about it. But now her entire life has changed because she realizes the value of the ring that she had. See, this is worship, guys. Many of us come to God and believe in God out of this kind of passed down belief that sits in a box in a room and we pull it out when we need something. We don't really understand its value. We pull it out when we need some kind of benefit to help in some aspect of our life. Okay, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to pray. God, I need, that's because next week I have a big job interview, so I'm going to do some God stuff for about a week. Hopefully I'll build up, you know, a little credit there. Pull it out. But see, when you take inventory of God, when you actually look at who God is and what he's done in your life and what he's done for you through Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection, that you are healed and forgiven, that his grace is freely given to you, that your life is promised eternally through faith in him, that he is guiding your life now and he's working good in your life, that he gives you hope when you feel hopeless, joy when you're not feeling any type of peace or joy in your life. When you take an inventory of the greatness of God, it causes you to reevaluate everything because you realize that before you were not living in accordance with the value that was before you. You see, God is the most valuable And when you take inventory of the greatness of God, it should cause you to ascribe ultimate value to him and then to worship him with your emotions, worship him with your will as you surrender it to him and worship him with your mind as you don't run away from discomfort and doubt, but you lean into it, trusting that he will make known to you truth. You see, the the word worship in the old English is the word worth-ship, it's where our word worship comes from. Worthship. It's ascribing worth to God, ultimate worth. So, my prayer for myself and my prayer for us, church, is that we would ascribe ultimate worth to God because He is worthy, He is the most valuable. That we would realize that sometimes we're living out of accordance with the value that is before us through faith in Christ. And that would cause us to worship with our mind, with our heart, and with our will. That we would begin to live, as Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. With all of you, worship God. Will you pray with me? God, we want to confess, I want to confess that I make other things more valuable than you. I pray, God, that you would humble me, that you would open up 
my mind and my heart to see those things that I cling to more tightly than you, that I view as more valuable than you. Though I wouldn't say it, I often live it. Lord, I believe that many of us feel that way, that our, our worship at times is inauthentic, that it feels forced or fake because we're running after things that will waste away staring at. Would you move, Holy Spirit, in our heart and our mind tonight to see your ultimate worth and value, that we would see your grace given to us through faith in Christ, that it would move us emotionally, that it would make known to us those things that we need to surrender, that it would enable us to lean into the uncomfortable places and to think and to take inventory of your beauty and your greatness. God, we pray that we would worship well as your people and that we would commit to being together to see you more clearly as one, as a community of faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.